The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have tonight to gather in peace and security to study your word. Thank you, Lord, for the freedoms we have in our country to do that. I'm grateful, Lord, for the uh, times that we share on Wednesday evening walking through the book of Romans. And as we go through uh, some very deep waters tonight in the chapter in Romans 7, help us to understand um, the danger of sin. Help us to understand um, how much we need your help. Uh, how overpowering uh, sin is. Apart from your grace, we cannot win, but we know that grace is sovereign and powerful. And so I pray that as we study tonight, you give us everything that we need for godliness so that we can glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, take your copy of the Bible and open to Romans 7, or you can take the handout I gave you. Um, we're continuing to move through Romans uh, 7, and tonight we're going to look uh, at 7, um, 12 through 25. Uh, we've already done some work in seven through uh, verses 7 through 12, so I actually want to begin there. Uh, if somebody would be willing to read uh, Romans 7, 1 through 12, and somebody else 13 through 25 will get the scripture reading, and then I'm going to make some initial comments based on the handout. So who would like to read Romans 7, 1 through 12, and then I'll get somebody else uh, 13 through 25. All right, thank you. So... Um, I start with uh, an illustration I used. I preached three sermons uh, back in 2001, three sermons on Romans 7, 13 through 25. And the second sermon I began with this illustration uh, taken from Ralph Venning's uh, work, uh, The Plague of Plagues. This is how the illustration goes. In the year 1665, the Black Death, the bubonic plague, came to the city of London. Uh, now, earlier in history, in the 14th century, the Black Death had swept uh, through the entire continent of Europe, wiping out whole villages. It left a legacy of terror unlike anything that had ever happened really up till that time. Well, that terror returned to London in the year 1665, and there seemed to be scarcely a house without someone dead. Death was everywhere. And the connection between sin and death was never more obvious as the people recognized and realized it was through the sin of one man that death entered the world and they felt the tyranny, the power of sin and death, the reign of sin and death, as it were. As Christians, we know from Romans 5 that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have this seemingly unbreakable reign of sin and death, this unbeatable foe of death, and the only thing stronger is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a Puritan pastor who lived at that time named Ralph Venning, and he wrote a book shortly thereafter, four years later, in 1669, and he entitled it The Plague of Plagues. Uh, what is the true plague that troubles the human race? It is not disease. It is not the bubonic plague. It is uh, the Black Death. It is, in fact, sin. And that's what this book was about. The Plague of Plagues was sin. Parenthetically, his publisher chose the title Plague of Plagues so that it would sell. He actually never refers to the plague at all in his book, The Actual Disease. He's talking immediately about the issue of sin. Uh, but the publisher, knowing that books uh, needed to sell, chose this provocative title 
uh, to lure people in to buy it. But it is a good analogy. Uh, the real plague is sin. And that's what the book was about. And he took as his starting point Romans 7.13, which is what we're going to study tonight. Uh, Did that which is good, namely the holy, righteous, and good law of God, become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. So basically the issue in Romans 7, 13 through 25 is we're going to understand just how devastating sin really is. Uh, Romans 6, we're told we are set free from sin. We're not, we're not uh, slaves to sin. Uh, decisively, we never need to sin again, et cetera, et cetera. But then reality crashes in in Romans 7 saying, yes, but sin is very powerful. And uh, we have to address it as a very powerful force. As a matter of fact, it is the second most powerful force in human experience. The only thing stronger than sin is the grace of God in Christ. That's a fact. Sin is, is, is a... Uh, a tyrant, a dominating force in human history. It affects every moment of every day all over the world. It's a dominant force, and the only thing stronger is the grace of God in Christ. So that sin might become utterly sinful, that we might actually see sin for what it is. That's what Ralph Benning, Benning sought to do with his book, The Plague of Plagues. And he made seven major observations based on the text we're going to begin looking at tonight. Seven observations. Number one, the law of God as a whole, is good in each of its parts. The law is good, A to Z. Every part of it is good. Secondly, this good law, when transgressed, hands a man over to death. Thirdly, though the law condemns man's fault and man for his fault, yet the law still is good and is not to be blamed. It's not the law's fault. There's nothing wrong with the law. Uh, Fourth, it is not the law, therefore, but sin itself that works man's death and ruin. Fifth, Sin works man's death and destruction by that which is good, by that which is holy and good and righteous, namely the law. Therefore, sixth, sin is exceedingly wicked and detestable. This is what Ralph Venning said. Sin is most immeasurably spiteful, poisonous, and pernicious because it kills men, and not only so, but it kills them by that which is good and what was appointed to man for life. Therefore, it turns food into poison. And then finally, seventh, by the commandments, sin appears to be, is revealed to be, excessively sinful. Benning says this, if we look on this through the microscope glass of the law, take sin and put it under the microscope and look at it, it will appear a most hideous and devilish and hellish thing, the most wicked and mischievous, villainous and deadly thing that ever was, sinful sin, he says, worse than the devil, end quote. Why is sin worse than the devil? Why is sin so wicked? It is contrary to the very nature of God. It's contrary to individual attributes of God. It's contrary to the plan of God. It's contrary to humanity in every respect. So first of all, sin is contrary to the nature of God because God is pure. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. It's directly opposed to the nature of God. Uh, Also, Habakkuk 1.13, God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. He won't even look at it as God is completely pure. Then Venning walks through the attributes of God and shows how sin opposes the attributes. I thought this was helpful, so I brought it over to you in your handouts tonight. Sin deposes God's sovereignty. Why is that? It says with Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should obey him? It makes us king or queen over against God the king. uh, Secondly, it says sin denies God's all-sufficiency. Why did the prodigal son leave home? Well, it's because there wasn't enough in his father's uh, home to keep him there. He wasn't satisfied. 
Uh, he had to roam. He had to wander. And so he wanted something other than the will of God for him. So sin denies the all-sufficiency of God. By the way, with David and Bathsheba, wasn't this the very point that Nathan brought up? He said, I gave you this, I gave you that, I gave the other, and if that had been too little, I would have given you more. Why is it you had to go after another man's wife? Why was it the things I gave you weren't enough for you? And so that's what Venning is saying here. Sin denies uh, all sufficiency. Um, sin denies... Uh, God's justice or defies God's justice. Either on one hand, it says that God is unjust for bringing his condemnation on us or unjust for writing his law, or perhaps on the other side, it says that God has no justice or that God will not act against sin, that there won't be any justice worked on us for our violation of his law. So it denies the justice of God. It also disowns God's omniscience. It says, does God really see what I do in darkness, uh, what I do alone? Could it be he really doesn't know? Uh, it despises the riches of God's goodness and patience, uh, not realizing, as it says in Romans, that God's goodness, kindness, tolerance, and patience are to lead us to repentance. Instead, we presume on God's goodness and patience day after day after day. And it defiles God's grace by turning the beautiful grace of God into a license for immorality and for sin. This is the wickedness of sin. Anyway, that, I think that's a very helpful meditation, how sin uh, opposes specific attributes of God one by one. Sin is also contrary to the plan of God. Uh, this wasn't venting, this was me uh, being a mechanical engineer. Um, sin is like friction. It opposes whatever God, whatever direction God wants to move. That's what friction does. Move in this direction, it fights it. Move in that direction, it fights Sin opposes whatever it is God is trying to do. It fights against the plan of God. As Romans 8, 7 says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Also, sin is contrary to the best interest of humanity. Fundamentally, what is best for us is God. God is what we need. God is what we want. God is the treasure hidden in the field. Christ is the treasure hidden in the field. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. Psalm 73. Genesis 15. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, I am your very great reward. That's what, uh, that's what we need. Sin separates us, therefore, from the very thing that is our highest good, namely God. And therefore, sin is contrary to man as well. Sin, sin is the ultimate enemy of everything that you hold dear and precious. There's not a day that goes by that we do not feel the sting of its whip like a scorpion across our back. Every little Eden that God has ever created, sin has crept in to ruin it to some degree. From the original Eden to the Eden of a family, a husband, a wife, or of a church, or of a nation, every good thing that comes, it is sin that creeps in to pollute it, to defile it. Sin brought the worldwide flood. Sin built the Tower of Babel. It was sin that enticed Solomon and turned his back against God. It was sin that brought down the temple that he built. Sin has resisted and destroyed every good thing in this world except for the blessings of the gospel. Uh, one illustration I just added, um, here's your daily dose of Ezekiel. There's something every single week from Ezekiel. So here it is, the promised land. What does God say about the promised land? Someone read Ezekiel 20, verse 6. Oh, there's a lot of descriptions like this. You've heard this is very famous, a land flowing with milk and honey, but then he calls it the most beautiful of all lands. You remember how the 12 spies uh, brought back this huge cluster of grapes that was so big they had to carry it on a pole between their shoulders? Remember that? It was just lavishly beautiful land. But then look what it says later in Ezekiel. So I'm going to read Ezekiel 33, 29. What does he say that he's going to do to the land, the promised land, that beautiful land? What does he say he's going to do to it? 
make it a desert. Why? Because of their sin. And he, and he promises this in the blessings and curses and the curses. He says, I'm going to turn the, the sky into iron above you and the ground into bronze beneath your feet. It's going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to kill everything. And, uh, you know, it's, it's devastating. So this is all introduction. Romans 7 is written to show us how evil and powerful sin really is. It's a, a force so great we could never defeat it without the power of the gospel, uh, power of God working in us by the gospel. All right. All right, so one of the themes of Romans, we brought this up last time, Romans 7 is the law cannot sanctify us, all right? That's, I think, the whole ch- uh, topic of the whole chapter, the Christian's relationship with the law and specifically how that shows the power of sin. It is as impossible to be sanctified by law as it is to be justified by the law. Can't be justified by the law, Romans 3.20, by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Romans 7 says, by works of the law, no human being will be sanctified in his sight either. So last week, I gave you this three-part outline of Romans 7. First, Romans 7, 1 through 6, dead to the law, married to Christ, bearing fruit for God. The key verse is verse 4. Someone read verse 4 for us by way of reminder. All right, so that's a decisive end to our relationship with the law. By faith in Christ, we have been united with Christ in his death. And also in his resurrection, here decisively in his death, we died to the old relationship we had with the law so that we could effectively, by this illustration, remarry. And remarry who? Remarry Christ, him who was made alive again. And for what reason? So that together we might bear fruit for God. The the image is one of a fruitful marriage uh, between us and God. It's a very complex image, but that's the image he gives. Decisively then, we died to the law um, in its condemning uh, power, in its dominating power in that sense, all right? Then uh, verses 7 through 12, we began to study last week. We'll look at it a little more tonight. The vindication of the law. What Paul has to do is say, there is nothing wrong with the law. He says it in verse 7. He says it again in verse 12. Is the law sin? Is, is there a problem with the law? No, the problem's not with the law. What's the problem? Problems with us, all right? Well, how big a problem is it? It is deep and pervasive. It goes to the very core of our being. It's so strong that Paul's even a call, call it a law at work in our members, in the members of our body. He, he, it's a different use of the word law, but he says, I see another law at work inside. It's just always with us. It's a force, a power. That's what we're dealing with here. And so the problem's with us. And then the uh, third part of the chapter Uh, 13 through 25, Paul's experience with indwelling sin, proof that law cannot sanctify a Christian. So it's a case study, um, but it's deeper than that. It probes our hearts. So let's uh, dig in a little more on verses 7 through 12. Um, We've already read it, so just by way of a paragraph overview. Paul vindicates the law here. Uh, Let me stop. Why does he do that? Why does he take these verses, 7 through 12, to vindicate the law and say how great and wonderful the law is? Why would that be important for us to know that the problem's not with the law? Would we do that? I talked about this last week. Would we blame the law? Say, God, I'm going to kick the law back to you. Why don't you write a better law and then we'll keep it? All right? Well, no, we wouldn't. There's no way that God could write any kind of a holy or righteous or just law that we would keep. So, yeah. So we want to blame shift. Why else do you think that, uh, that Paul would want to vindicate the law? Absolutely. And I want to... It can't save us. Um, also, let's, uh, let's keep going on into the question of sanctification. What is it? What, what actually is sanctification? 
What's actually going on when somebody is genuinely being sanctified? Let's say they're 10 years into sanctification. What's actually happening in their lives? And does it have anything to do with the law? I think it does. I mean, let's keep it simple. Jesus simply summarized the law for us in two commandments. What are they? Love God, love others. Let's keep it super simple. Thank you. That was, that was as simple as it gets. All right, love God, love others. Or more expansively, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Does that have anything to do with sanctification at all? Or vice versa, does sanctification have anything to do with that? Would you not think we're making progress in those exact same two areas? That's what progressive holiness is. So if you look at, at Romans 8, 4, he's going to say, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here's the thing. What we're going to find, and this is a, a key observation, from verse 13 through verse 25, you never see once mentioned the Holy Spirit. I think that's going to be a key interpretive observation. The Holy Spirit is never mentioned here. Now, he is mentioned in, uh, in verse 6, I think it is, where it says um, that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So he does set it up that way. I think 13 through 25 is what it looks like to try to keep the law with no help from the Spirit. Does that make sense? Even as a converted person. As a converted person, if you're on your own with the law, you will not keep it. So I think what he's doing is he's setting us up for the key insight. He already gave it to us in 7.6, but he's going to expand on it in chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. You know, we are led by the Spirit to mortify the deeds of the flesh. We're led by the Spirit, you know, Galatians 5, for the fruit of the Spirit, negatively, positively. So, it's only by the Spirit this is going to happen. So this is, I, I, I think the idea is law unaided, just the law, you and the law, you unaided in the law, you'll fail. Also, I would say Romans 7, 13 through 25 is exactly how Christians sin. It's how Paul sinned as a Christian. It's how we sin as a Christian. All right. And why do I say that? Because the Holy Spirit never loses. He doesn't ever lose. Spirit versus sin, who wins? You should know the answer to that one, all right? The Spirit will win. So therefore, when we win versus a temptation as Christians, how did we do it in retrospect? By the Spirit. Only by the Spirit. That's why I think what we have in the second half of Romans 7 here is what it looks like when we try in our own strength, where our own good intentions, our own love for the law and all that, et cetera, on our own, we try to keep it, we can't. That's what he's, I think that's what he's saying. So that's just interpretive key and we'll, we'll walk through it. But I think fundamentally it has to do with the issue of, um, you know, unaided. So the reason I think he's vindicating laws so that we don't make excuses, we don't blame God, we don't think somehow there was something he could have written a better law, but also because in the end, the Holy Spirit is going to be bringing us back to the law to fulfill it, right? As I said, like the Ten Commandments, all right? You look at that and it's like, are they relevant for the Christian life? Well, they really are. They really are. And so we're going to come back in and we're going to be looking at uh, the Ten Commandments, you know? It's not like you have heard that, I, that it was said, you shall not murder, but now I say you may murder as much as you like. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but now I can say you can sleep with whoever you want to. Are you seeing that in the New Testament? Not at all. So we are having the law fulfilled in us, but now we're not alone. We're not unaided. Christ, by his spirit, is in us, enabling us to fulfill the law. That's, that's why. So he's vindicating the law so that we don't make excuses, but also so that he can elevate it and say, in verse 12, the law is holy and righteous and good. So I think that's what's going on here uh, as he walks through. So let's go back. Paul vindicates the law here because it might be thought that he had been insulting law or in some way dragging it down. Paul is strongly asserting here that the law ha has an indispensable role in our initial salvation, our justification, especially by showing us, number one, what sin is, number two, that sin is clearly in us, that we're guilty of transgressions, and then preparing us to seek the salvation that Christ alone can give. So that's some of the function of the law. What Paul says in Galatians is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So it, can, it, it does that. Then Paul gives an example of how the law teaches what sin is in the case of coveting. The 10th commandment is quoted here, you shall not covet. Stop. Why does he do that? Why does he zero in on that particular of the 10 commandments? Of all the ones he could have chosen, why that one? A heart matter, is that what you're saying? A heart matter? Okay. Well, let's take the Jews of Jesus' day. How, what percentage of them do you think could say, honestly, I've never murdered anyone? I would think a very, very high percentage of them. Now, I will say in Ezekiel, it's amazing how much murder is mentioned. There, there was a lot of killing that went on, especially by the leaders. I look on them also almost like mafia people. The way they, they come across in Ezekiel is these, these were corrupt people, and they murdered a lot of people. But the average run-of-the-mill Israelite, I think, wasn't a murderer literally, physically. So you could see how you could say, I've kept that, I've kept that. But the 10th commandment, I don't, I don't know that anybody could rightly say I've kept that one. You know, um, yeah, absolutely, I've never coveted. It's a heart matter, right, coveting. Why do you think God put it in the 10 commandments? Why a, why a law against coveting? It does seem different than the others. But you see the wisdom of God to put it in there. Why, why do you think a law against coveting? First of all, what is it? What is, what is coveting? Using your imagination to steal it, all right? all right? Okay, so how would you define it? How would you define coveting? Okay, wanting something, any list, you know, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife, you shall cover your neighbor's house, or his manservant or maidservant, or, and then he sums up anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay, it is idolatry. So it's wanting, it's like a little wanting, is that coveting? If you're just like, oh, that's a nice car. I mean, is that it? I mean, or is it a more ardent desire? How would you define it? Is it a strong desire or any desire at all for your neighbor's thing? Yeah, it, it, uh, it's, yeah, a sense of discontent. Um, jealousy creates jealousy. So you see the wisdom of God in putting this as the 10th of the 10 commandments. How would you say it relates to Jesus' expansion on the law? You've heard, and I just hinted at it. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother is in danger of the fire of hell. Again, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say that if you even look at a woman lustfully, you already committed adultery in your heart. How would you say that, those two statements, relate to coveting? You remember um, what God said to, uh, to Samuel when he was um, going to Jesse's house to anoint Saul's successor? And he looked at the firstborn, he said, ah, here's the guy. He said, don't, don't look at his appearance because I've rejected him. Because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And that's clear evidence. The 10th commandment is clear evidence that that's true. 
By the way, it is a law only God could make because it's the law only God could enforce and judge. No government could ever enforce a law on coveting. How could you know what's going on? But God does. God knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. So God is searching our heart. So again, I want you to see the consistency of Jesus. He didn't like invent new things in the Sermon on the Mount. He just was being more consistent. He took the coveting uh, conception and applied it to all of it. God is actually looking at your heart. He's looking at clean hands and a pure heart. So he zeroes in on that. All right, so Paul uses that 10th commandment as a case study for himself. What does he say about it in these verses? What does he say about his experience on the commandment, you shall not covet? What's the first thing he says about it? He actually says something positive about it, how the law you know, was helpful for him on this topic. So I wouldn't have known what coveting was. So the law instructed me and told me what coveting is and that coveting is evil and God hates it. So it's, it was helpful in that regard. I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, I wouldn't have known sin, I wouldn't have known specifically coveting, all right, if the Lord had not said or the law had not said it. But that's not all he says. What else does he say on his case study of coveting? It didn't stop there. What happened next? It's a very strong, I looked it up. Uh, the, it's the, the Greek word there. It's, it's gra- grasped it, grabbed it, you know, seized is a strong, it's a good, but it's a good translation. Sin seized the opportunity, like a thief, something like that. By the way, do you not notice how Paul personifies sin here often? It's like sin is intelligent, creative, deceptive, vicious, you know, there's very much a personification of sin in this whole chapter. He does this a lot. Why do you think he does that? Why do you think he personifies sin? Sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, et cetera. Why does he personify sin? And he's gonna argue that way, especially for us as Christians now. So when you're personifying also, what's the difference between a, a person and an inanimate object? All right. Well, one of the things is a person can can make plans. A uh, person has intelligence. There's a certain intelligence. Would you say that there's, in your uh, experience, there's a certain intelligence to sin? There's a certain create dark creativity, a certain skill. Um, there's scheming. You know, you say, well, that's Satan. I know, but yes, Satan's a person, but I, I feel like it's almost the exact same thing with sin. It's almost like they're equal, like sin equals Satan, although they are different. Um, so there's a creativity, there's, there's an intellect, there's schemes and plots and all that. That's what you're dealing with. And I feel like the whole chapter is simply lest we underestimate sin. That's, I think that's what this whole chapter is here for. Do you think that's a real danger that we underestimate sin in our lives? That's so clearly a rhetorical question. <laughs> of course, pastor, that's true. So go ahead, Greg. Right, crouching implies, you know, I picture like a lion ready to spring. So that really lines up with this sin seizing the opportunity. There's this energy. All right, well, what happened? What does he say happened? So he reads the command. I picture him like in Gamaliel school, a rabbi, and he's like going, they're doing some study here on the Ten Commandments. And he's a boy, a little Jewish boy. And they get to, you know, going through, and the Tenth Commandment, it's like, you know, Master, what is coveting? Well, let me tell you what it is. And he's and now look what it says. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not, whatever. Somewhere in that education, according to these verses, what happened? He got interested in coveting. Something happened inside him. He said, um, sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me, it says, all kinds of covetousness. 
all kinds of covetousness. What does that mean? All manners, all types, all flavors. Meaning what? Now, there's a list in the Ten Commandments. You shall not cover. I already kind of gave it to you. I don't have it memorized, but there's a certain list. Like, what of that list, what do you think he ended up coveting? Those things. <laughs> you know, and it's just not one thing. It's just sin is multifaceted and varied and complex. And so it wasn't just one moment of coveting. It was basically, it, it was... It was all manner of covetousness came in me, all right? So it produced all kinds of covetousness in me. And this is what it does. I mean, wouldn't you say the same thing with all the Ten Commandments? There's not just one moment. There's all all types of sinful anger, let's say. Like Jesus said, you're angry. Well, it says in in Ephesians, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander. It's like how many different flavors of anger are there? There's lots of different types and flavors. You do them all. It's like, well, I don't do brawling. It's like, all right, well, good for you. All right, you're working on that one. You're good. You're not brawling. But you got all these other things. Bitterness is different than rage. But they're both sin. And we do bitterness in some cases and rage in other cases. It's just multifaceted. And that's just one little pocket of it. How widespread is this thing? It's staggering, actually. Do you see how Jesus got to the 10,000 talents? We have sinned in so many big ways and we don't even remember it all. So he says, it produced in me all kinds of, co- all manners of covetousness. And then he says, for apart from the law, sin is dead. What does that mean? Apart from the law, sin is dead. It doesn't, it, dead, we would say it doesn't have an existence. All right, because sin is lawlessness. You need a law in order to sin. That's the argument Paul makes. He makes this argument in Romans 5. He makes it here again. You need a law in order to sin. If there's no law, you can't sin, right? So if God said in the Garden of Eden, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, period, full stop, then there's no sin because there's no law. See what I'm saying? But if there is a forbidden tree, now there's a boundary, there's a law, and sin is is a transgression of the law. There has to be a law. And so he says, apart from the law, sin is dead. And then he elaborates, verse 9. Once I was alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life or revived or came alive, and I died. Now, what is that talking about? Once I was alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, and I understood it, and I got that full lesson on covetousness and all that. Now, I died. So this is a very significant statement here. Once I was alive apart from the law. What's he talking about? Blissfully ignorant, maybe? <laughs> In what condition? When do you think that was for him? Not yet, though. He was alive. So apparently he wasn't dead yet. So he, the law hadn't come yet. If there is anywhere in the Bible an argument for an age of accountability, it's right here, right here in Romans 7, 9. So what is that? What is an age of accountability? Do we know even what that is? What does that mean, age of accountability? And before that, what? Before the age of accountability, by, just by the title, you're not accountable. So that would be the argument of infants, like that little one you're holding there, Leslie, in your arms, like innocent, right? 
And that's actually key to the issue of infant mortality and other things, and also the, the doctrine of infant damnation, which has been very painful uh, for some people to go through, which I don't believe. Um, but the idea is somewhere in there, when they're growing up, like the dimmer switch, children, this happens. We have to say, this happens to them. Okay, The very thing Paul's describing here, which is they will die spiritually, all right? And what does that mean to die spiritually? But it also relates to Ephesians 2.1, all right? As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins even while you lived. Now, that's not hell. What is that talking about in Ephesians 2.1? As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you live when you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also, all of us also. What does that mean? All of us also. All of us were dead in our transgressions and sins while we lived. So it's spiritual death. Remember how um, Jesus said to someone, follow me, and he said, well, first let me go and bury my father. And he said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Remember that? What does he mean, let the dead bury their own dead? He means let the spiritually dead bury their physical dead. That's what it means. How could a dead person bury somebody? So that's spiritual death. So do you think that that could be what Paul's talking about here? Once I was alive, apart from the law, but once I understood the law, then I died. I became spiritually dead. And that's, I think, I, for me, that's what I would argue. Now, you could say, well, first of all, I'm not 100% sure that there is an age of accountability in the Bible. It's like, fine, but you do have to deal with the, the problem of infant, infant mortality. You know, how do you understand that? And, and questions, reasonable questions for me as a pastor. It's not, it's not abstract. There are actual questions that are asked by grieving parents and would like to just, would like to have some assurance. So for me, the biggest argument is not so much here, but it more has to do with the depictions of Judgment Day. The court is seated, the books are open, and the dead are judged according to what they have done as written in the books. It always works. It always works. And so therefore, it just, you know, and, and also God does judgment in such a way that vindicates him. He's vindicated by it. That's one that's hard to vindicate. It's hard to see how an infant had, did any works, understood anything. So that would be my argument against infant damnation. But I think this is still pretty powerful here. They don't understand the law. And the fundamental thing is they have to understand the vertical aspect of the law the God-word aspect of the law. What do I mean by that, the God-word aspect of the law? God. It's against God, against you and you only have I sinned. So coveting is a sin you do against God. It's a God-word thing to covet. God says you shall not covet. The God who made you, the God who made heaven and earth and everything in it, that God is telling you not to covet. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. You die. That's the death, isn't it? from which we need to be made alive through faith in Christ. So I think that's what Paul's saying here. Once I was alive, you could argue that it would be somebody who has no conviction, like the rich young ruler. I've got some verses in there. The rich young ruler would be an example of somebody who was blissfully alive. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.